Nobody knew my rose of the world but me. I had too much glory. They don't want glory like that in nobody's heart. In a way, her strangeness, her naivete, her craving for the other half of her equation was the consequence of an idle imagination. Had she paints or clay or knew the discipline of the dance or strings, had she anything to engage her tremendous curiosity and her gift for metaphor, she might have exchanged the restlessness and preoccupation with whim for an activity that provided her with all she yearned for. And like any artist with no art form, she became dangerous. Two voices, Billy Holiday, of course, and Loveless Love, and Soul of Souls, and Goalless Goals, and Toni Morrison reading from a very powerful, deceptively simple, deceptively simple, beautiful novel, Sully. In the opening was a little epigraph from Rose Tattoo, a glory that people were afraid of, and here is Sula, Sula. And uh, the book is called Sula, and it's about what? It's the need of, what would you describe it? You go back to the beginning. It's a certain place, a certain time, and two young women. Well, the book is about, it's about a town, it's about a place, it's about loss, about friendship, two women who were friends and who needed You say each it's other. about love? I, oh, yeah. I thought it's about, you know, I, in the funny way, I thought you said it's about lost, which no. is interesting, isn't it? I said about loss. Loss, yeah. Right. Loss. It, there is a, a sense yeah. of loss yeah. in the book, um, one of the ways in which to tell people about how powerful love is and how important friendship is, is to take it away mm. in a book, and then you, you miss it. And you know what it was. Yeah, this is a Knopf book, and uh, the first of the novels that Toni Morrison was an e excellent editor, by the way, for it, not to confuse things, for Random House, is also a beautiful novelist. We come back to beginnings, specifics. It's a town in Ohio. I'm about to say Lorraine. You're from Lorraine. <laughs> a town yes. called Medallion. And it's a place called The Bottoms. That's right. And that's worth describing. Perhaps as we go, as we're just talking, you're reading from it, of course. Uh, what better way than to read from it, too, to get the feeling of the lyricism? Well, the Bottoms. That was the name of the yeah. neighborhood. An ironic, it was, it was an ironic name, obviously. Right, since, it was uh, up in the hills, yeah. surrounding the town. Uh -huh. And uh, allegorically, I suppose, it was the bottom. But it also was, uh, as the joke went, the bottom of heaven mm. for the people who lived there. It seemed to me, you know, I had the feeling that those places are are going away. There are not many neighborhoods left. Now it may be because I've lived in New York and mm. it's an alien place mm. to me because I've lived in a small Did town you all my life. I'm about to say, in Lorraine, I realize this is not an autobiographical work, yet it's a work of reflection of a time and a place. Yes. In Lorraine, there was such a place? Was there such a place like the bottom? Not really yeah. in Lorraine because that was uh, a little bit different. But there were black neighborhoods mm. in those towns, you see. And perhaps geographically not entirely that, uh, like the one described in Sula, but um, we lived with each other. And uh, it's, it's a steel town, Lorraine, Ohio, and most of the people there are second generation something or other. Mm. And a few very wealthy people live along the lake. But most of us, white and black, were mm. poor. And, but within that poverty, within that situation, there were neighborhoods, there were people on the street, and all of the adults could run our lives, and we shared yeah. with each other, and uh, 
There was a cohesiveness there. Oh, you describe it as these two young girls, Sula and her friend Nell, who obviously need one another, mm-hmm. walk by as kids. They sense <laughs> everything, the laughter, the excitement, the, the music. Right. I, mm. I think that uh, so much, particularly in... in uh, books written in these days, and particularly about black, it's as though all the black people in the world lived in New York or Chicago, and it's also as though nothing happened after, um, I don't know, a little bit of slavery, a little bit of renaissance, and all of a sudden we're in 1970. As though those days and those times and those places, uh, nobody ever mentions that. Alice Walker wrote about places like oh, yes. that, too. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Alice Walker did. And but suppose you read, it, perhaps the very opening might even set the, the style as well as the mood oh, of sure. Sula. In that place where they tore the nightshade and blackberry patches from their roots to make room for the medallion city golf course, there was once a neighborhood. It stood in the hills above the valley town of Medallion and spread all the way to the river. It's called the suburbs now, but when black people lived there, it was called the bottom. One road, shaded by beeches, oaks, maples, and chestnuts, connected it to the valley. The beaches are gone now, and so are the pear trees where the children sat and yelled down through the blossoms to passers-by. Generous funds have been allotted to level the stripped and faded buildings that cluttered the road from Medallion up to the golf course. They're going to raise the time-and-a-half pool hall where feet in long tan shoes once pointed down from chair rungs. A steel ball will knock to dust Irene's Palace of Cosmetology, where women used to lean their heads back on sink trays and doze while Irene lathered nunile into their hair. Men in khaki work clothes will pry loose the slats of Reba's grill, where the owner cooked in her hat because she couldn't remember the ingredients without it. There will be nothing left of the bottom. The footbridge that crossed the river is already gone, but perhaps it's just as well since it wasn't a town anyway, just a neighborhood, where on quiet days, people in valley houses could hear singing sometimes, banjos sometimes, and if a valley man happened to have business up in those hills, collecting rent or insurance payments, he might see a dark woman in a flowered dress doing a bit of cakewalk, a bit of black bottom, a bit of messing around to the lively notes of a mouth organ. Her bare feet would raise the saffron dust that floated down on the coveralls and bunion split shoes of the man breathing music in and out of his harmonica. The black people watching her would laugh and rub their knees, and it would be easy for the valley man to hear the laughter and not notice the adult pain that rested somewhere under the eyelids, somewhere under their head rags and soft felt hats, somewhere in the palm of the hand somewhere behind the frayed lapels, somewhere in the sinews curve. He'd have to stand in the back of Greater St. Matthew's and let the tenor's voice dress him in silk or touch the hands of the spoon carvers who had not worked in eight years and let the fingers that danced on wood kiss his skin. Otherwise, the pain would escape him even though the laughter was part of the pain. As Toni Morrison reads the opening passages, you sense it's a poetic novel, of course. There's a lyric quality, also it's metaphorical, too, isn't it? You speak of the end of a black neighborhood, and yet each person, black or white, thinks of some sense of loss. That is, my contemporary does, you know. 
because we know now the year 1919 to 65, and 65 the bottoms are no more. That's right. TV antenna, a golf course for the middle class whites, gone. That's right. Gone. Hawk. Where'd the people go? They went to big cities, or as ah. Nell says, she walks down that town, and everybody's talking about we need a community now. But somehow they lost the place, mm-hmm. yeah. the place where people yeah. loved each other. Uh, those small towns, you know, have a lot of space in them. Yeah. Space for yeah. people to uh, be mad mm. or to mm-hmm. be eccentric or to be, uh, you know, it, a large city sometimes can impose itself on mm. you mm. so easily. As you speak of, you say Nell, with a single L, and Sula, the two friends, the two central figures of the book, people have a, like to be, a right to be mad, eccentric. There is in this, in this town of Medallion, there is a man named Shadrach. Yes. Shadrach was uh, wounded many ways in World War One. Make a big bill writing a song called When I Get to Be Called a Man. Big Bill speaks yeah. of this. So Shadrach invents something called National Suicide Day. Yeah. His being blasted and astounded by his experiences in the war took a heavy toll on him and um, he tried to order reorder the universe and he thought of a way to do it and he founded a day himself called National Suicide Day. And on that day, he thought people should all take the opportunity to kill themselves then and to save the waste of the unexpectedness of death, to sort of uh, make life neat. And then the rest of the year, they would be free to live. It is a curious way of ordering it. But Mm. what happens, of course, is that the people are frightened a little bit and don't pay much attention. But they begin to incorporate that day into their lives. And little by little, it becomes uh, a thing. You're talking also about survival, too, aren't you? Survival through a strange kind of humor and a strange kind of madness. In the case of Shadrach, that is not madness at all, but truth. That's right. The kind of free man, Mm. the kind of man who, through refusal to obey the rules of society. This is by way of introducing the backgrounds of Nell and Sula. And so Nell. Nell becomes more the... not established, but she accepts. She has a mother named Helene, right? Yes, Helene. And she's, uh, she's, she's responsible, uh, conventional perhaps. Uh, she's the woman who um, connects with other people, who does her job, and uh, is responsive and civilized. I think that mm. she's the essence of civilization in that regard. But also of compromise, oh, too. Yes. yes. There's a train ride that Nell remembers well. When, she and when she's a small girl yes, and yes. her going to a grandmother's, a great-grandmother's funeral, her mother allows herself to be humiliated and smiles. And smiles after the man has abused her, verbally abused her and humiliated her. And then she sees not only that uh, face of the train conductor who has insulted her mother and her mother's willingness to uh, let it pass, but also the faces of the black men on that train who um, they don't say anything. She just sees their faces turn from flesh to marble. Mm. And she, too, shares in this humiliation. Mm. And all she ever wants, then, or one of the things that's important to her is to never have a man look at her that way. Mm. And it accounts for some of her reactions. And so she says, as she looks in the mirror, she says, I'm me, me. I'm me. I'm Nell. I'm me, me. The word me, in other words, she seeks her own sense of autonomy. As a, as a young girl, yeah. that's what she shares so nicely with Sula, is that sense of self and strangeness and magic, you see. And it was marriage for Nell uh, that made it yeah. impossible for her to continue along that line. Which, Sula, lead, of course, which leads us, of course, to, quote-unquote, the wild one, Sula. Yes. <laughs> and now we come to Sula, who was the Q 
key figure of the book. Yes, Sula and Nell were very close. And then Sula makes no compromises. She is brave in the sense of willing to risk pain, not only her own, but other people's. She is um, highly unimpressed with rules and regulations about society. She's probably brilliant, but in those days, and even in these days, when people have no way in which to be brilliant. Uh, that was the passage you read at the very that's beginning. Right, that's right. The idol she could have been. Now we come to in Sula, this fantastic creativity. Sula also is detached. There's Sula's grandmother, Eva, who loses a leg, who's tough and rough and uh, is broke, and she speaks of the agony of raising her boy, Plum. That's right. More of this in a moment. Well, will you tell it? Go ahead. Well, there's the, the two women who were ancestors, so to speak, of Sula. Huh. There's Eva, who was the matriarch, abandoned by her husband when she was young, and who simply had to do something to raise that family. And the thing she did, which is never really explained in the book because I wanted to leave it a little bit vague, mm. but she trades off some part of her body for an income to raise that family. To make it clear, the leg. The leg. Yeah. So she's living there on the third floor in a kind of a makeshift um, wagon, <coughs> rocking chair <coughs> contraption uh, with one leg, but grand and dignified. Mm. And even though she sits, when she sits in that wagon, she's low, you have the impression that you're looking up at yeah. her. Because she's that forceful yeah. kind of person. And she runs that house and practically that whole neighborhood from that one yeah. place. But she also has a couple of children we think of, and as Plum, whom she saved oh, yes. long ago when he couldn't, when he was constipated, what That's she right. did. <laughs> and finally, yeah, she, invested she has a lot to do in something else with Plum. So because she invested so much in him, that is, as a mother can do, you save the lives of your children over and over and over again. So when Plum comes back from the war, and he is a ruined man, and he's weak, and he's taking drugs, and he's helpless, her love for him, which is a kind of um, godlike love that is in the sense of she can reorder the universe, compels her to kill him. And of course it's fire, isn't it? She burns him. It's not the fire next time, it's the fire this time, isn't it? It's a cruel fire. thing to do, but her sensibilities, like Hannah's sensibilities, are they're informed by love. They may do dreadful things, uh, arrogant things. Uh, Eva's arrogant, but um, unlike Sula, who also can do some extraordinary things, hers is the absence of love, the absence of her sensibilities being informed by love. Yeah. But I'm thinking, even though she burned her son because he was absolutely helpless and hopeless, perhaps her love is so great, perhaps you can read part of this, the birth, the oh birth. Yes. <laughs> She's explaining here what she felt before she burned him. She says, he gave me such a time, such a time. Looked like he didn't even want to be born, but he come on out. Boys, is hard to bear. You wouldn't know that, but they is. It was such a carrying on just to get him born and keep him alive. Just to keep his little heart beating and his little old lungs cleared. And look like when he came back from the war, he wanted to get back in. After all that carrying on, just getting him out and keeping him alive, he wanted to crawl back in my womb. And well, I ain't got the room no more, even if he could do it. There wasn't space for him in my womb. 
and he was crawling back, being helpless and thinking baby thoughts and dreaming baby dreams and messing up his pants again and smiling all the time. I had room enough in my heart, but not in my womb, not no more. I birthed him once. I couldn't do it again. He was a growed, big old thing. God have mercy, I couldn't birth him twice. I'd be laying here at night and he'd be downstairs in that room, but when I closed my eyes, I'd see him, six feet tall, smiling and crawling up the stairs, quiet-like so I wouldn't hear, and opening the door so soft I wouldn't hear, and he'd be creeping into the bed and trying to spread my legs, trying to get back up in my womb. He was a man, girl, a big, old, grown-up man. I didn't have that much room. I kept on dreaming it, dreaming it, and I know it is true. One night it wouldn't be no dream, it'd be true, and I would have done it. I would have let him if I'd had the room, but a big man can't be a baby all wrapped up inside his mama no more. He suffocate. I'd done everything I could to make him leave me and go on and live and be a man, but he wouldn't, and I just had to keep him out. So I thought of a way he could die like a man, not all scrunched up inside my womb, but like a man. So since we're talking about death, transcendental in a strange way, love, aren't we, too? And this is a way of the explaining Sula, Sula's background, and is the strong Eva and her mother, Hannah. <laughs> Hannah once asked her mother, do you love me? Do you ever love us? Oh, yeah, Mama, did you ever love me? And then what did Eva say? <laughs> Well, you know, I always thought that question is probably the most important question anyone has ever asked in the world. You don't necessarily ask it of your mother. You might ask your father, God, president, somebody. But did you ever really love us? And Eva says, well, maybe not like you're thinking, but, and she tells, you know, there's this curious thing. Parents do everything in the world for their children. As Eva said, I stayed alive for you Mm -hmm. when the easiest thing would have been to die. Mm -hmm. But the children ask the same question. But you never played with us. Mm. Mama, why didn't you play with us? Mm. So there's that really consistent, yeah. you know, kind of tug yeah. of war. By the way, it's funny talking to Tony Morrison about this because just this very day, he and I took part in a book author luncheon here in Chicago. And uh, you speak of your children who want you to play with them. And yet there's Tony Morrison herself, the creative spirit and her writing which, of course, is alien to the thoughts of your children. Absolutely. You are stealing, they say, something from them. That's and right. yet, if you were all mother to them 24 hours a day, you were stealing something from yourself. Absolutely. And them, too, they don't know it now, but yeah. if I did only that, yeah. mother them and yeah. nothing else, yeah. I would be um, less effectual as a parent. Yeah. So what you have to do yeah. is to play with it yeah. constantly and give as much as you can to yourself, because yeah. I owe myself yeah. a lot, and as much as I can to them. So we come to Hannah, and a certain freedom about Hannah as a woman, Hannah mm. and sexuality. That's right. She's very self-indulgent, you see. I really miss Hannah a good deal. There is something, uh, she's not the strongest character in the book, but she's a woman who, in a way, she's a little bit of Nell and a little bit of Sula, you mm. see. She does the work in that house. She bakes the cakes, and she does the laundry, and she looks after the house. And she asks very little of life. She asks to be loved and made love mm. to as frequently as she can. And so that limits her, so she sleeps with the husbands of her friends or the people who are mm-hmm. dropping by. But with no feeling for possession, no demands that she make on the man. So she's a bit of a, um, um, 
she's a wicked woman yeah. in terms of the yeah. way the, the uh, conventional the people yeah. think it's of her. You said a bit of Nell and a bit of Sula. Of course, I was thinking this throughout the book, oh that yes. Nell and Sula may indeed be part of the same person. That's right. Very much so. Yeah. You're entirely right about that because they were um, maybe not two sides of the same coin, but in that way, they, that's why they were such good friends. You remember when um, Nell, uh, when Sula finally falls in love, she, uh, there's a lot of Nell in her. She starts setting the table and putting yeah. ribbons in her hair, and she starts to think domestic thoughts and possession yeah. thoughts. And but Sula is Nazi. Nell, influenced by her mother Helene and herself, is oh, now yes. settled. She's settled. That's right. She settles down and the town owns her. But Sula, on the contrary, <laughs> she becomes the, in a sense, the pariah. That's right. Town. She's the pariah in the town. In a way, she's the, she's, they use her the way people do use evil or what they conceive to be evil or that which is different. She forces people to define themselves because she has absolute scorn for them or absolute scorn for what they believe in. And so they have to shore themselves up and defend yeah. their beliefs to her. So in a sense, she is the devil. That's she right. She is the witch. Just as in a sense, Shadrach, That's the right. town outcast, the strange madman is also the devil. So Shadrach and Sula understand one right. another. That's right. He tips his hat to her he when he sees her on the street. And so both represent the terrifying aspect That's of us, right. also the creative aspect. Absolutely. Those two things. You yeah. see, when you have what might be called complete freedom is frightening because you don't know which way those people will because go. Because we know that Sula destroys the chicken little, the little boy. That's right. We know about that, don't we? She the wild impulsiveness in her. That's right. Uncontrolled. She's yeah. wanton. Yeah. You see, that's when one thinks about evil, generally, you think about, oh, I don't know, greediness or Hitlerian kinds of things, acquisition. But that's simple, yeah. you see, because you know what those people yeah. want. But genuine classical evil is difficult because, first of all, the people are attractive. Also, they don't really want anything. And you, don't, you can't deal with them because they really don't want anything. And they don't, you don't know which way they're going to go. You don't know where they're coming from. Therefore, you are responsible for yourself. They're not going to help you. They might be nice today. They might not be tomorrow. So she survives. <laughs> even her death, as you recall, was something. It, yeah. The whole process yeah. interested her. But before that, she returned, and she returns. Obviously, she's been living in the city, Cincinnati, perhaps. <laughs> Some of those. In the city with, uh, with men, different ways, surviving, and she comes back, and the town is terrified of her. And there's Nell, in the meantime, married to an interesting guy named Jude. Jude, yes. Jude wants to work with his hands, doesn't oh, yes. he? Yeah, those That's men in that book, yeah, the big yeah, tragedy for yeah. them, and even Ajax, Ajax. they wanted work. Mm. They wanted to do the work, and you see, it's important that uh, they just didn't want to make a living. It's not just that they wanted work in order to have more things. Those men wanted to fill out their skin. And Jude fantasizes, you may recall, about building that road. He even thinks maybe a hammer or something would fall on his foot mm. and he could limp. And people would ask him, what are you limping for? Mm. And he would say, I got that building that road. I built that road. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. Remember I said, your book and mine intertwine. Yes. Of course they do. I understand that. pride. And right. And build a, instead of being just the waiter who put, oh, nothing. Carry, right, yeah, trays. But something yeah. that is permanent right. that stays. I remember that, you know, I guess because of my father, who's a laborer. And I remember during the war, there was something you said today about the man who put a dent in the steel. Mm -hmm. My father was a welder in the shipyards, and I remember his talking about that. And he took such pride in his work. 
And after he would weld down the side, he put his initials mm. right underneath. You I see. remember the guy said, I like my name on that That's song. right. Yeah. And I, in the turnpike in Ohio, my father worked on that road. And I remember the sound of his voice when he said, mm. I built that road. Mm. So here's Sura, without meaning anything bad, steals Jude, the husband, from <laughs> Nell. And Nell and Sula returns. And the point she's saying is there's no sense of guilt. She wasn't. The irony, of course, is at the end, the realization with Sula's death, Nell, going back to childhood and memories, realized it's Sula she most missed. That's right. She thought she was missing her husband, but she realized that Sula, as a force in her life, as the most, as a view, as a, as a kind of uh, other self, she missed that more than anything. Yeah. Sula's, uh, I don't know, I suppose childish in a way. She has no sense of other people's property, whether it's men or things or what have you. And she, uh, she's totally free from it. She wears clothes like a mother did. She doesn't even look as though she belongs to the clothes. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't have that relationship to things, which makes her very strange. Now, I was thinking of Sula. You have Sula with a little mark, <laughs> sort of rose mark above her forehead somewhere, and that's the rose tattoo in the beginning, that glory, yes. you see. <laughs> when you quote that epigraph, I had too much glory. It's almost blinding, you that's see. Right. But a little right. mark also is a little defect in a way. That's right. It's also a mark, mark of woman cane, if you will, in a way. In a way, yes. And, uh, and people see it as different things, depending on who they are. I thought it was a Dorian are. Gray, too. Yes. Oh, she remained quite in her own way Oh, yes, she never had... She? Uh, wounds and her teeth never decayed yeah, and that was yeah. also made the people suspicious yeah. of her. And they look at that mark and some people say it's a tadpole, some people call it a rose, some people say it's a copperhead. In other words, people define her mark according to who they are rather than what that mark yeah. is, you see. So what are we talking about, really, this book that we touch upon so briefly, all too briefly, because I had all kinds of music in mind to play. <laughs> and we open with Billy. We're talking about the need that people have for that somebody like Sula, as though it was that wild, free spirit within us so repressed. It's this need for magic through which we know ourselves and touch ourselves, whether it's work or people or places, a way in which to keep in touch with the world and know who we are. Because there are these fantastic scenes and dialogues when Sula returns and visits her grandmother again. Now, this, this dialogue, I wish presumption me to try it. Read, perhaps you could read a bit. And when Nell and Sula meet, too. <laughs> perhaps you got to hear your voice reading some more. Shall we say the end? Perhaps any spot, really. Let's do the end. The end. Sula. Well, by the way, it's the years 1919 to 65. Times are skipped. And That's now, right. And now Nell is older. And she Nell remembers. is older. Sula's long gone. And she, now Nell has visited old Eva. And she realizes what she Eva's must... Eva's in the home. Eva's in Put the away old by home. That's right. Put away. And now Nell remembers that she was implicated in the killing of that small child. Earlier we touched on something. Uh, a little boy named Chicken Little. And when Nell and Sula were young, there was this little kid. And they swung him around and around. That's and someone let the kid fly. And he flew into the sea, into the water. He drowned and they know. never confessed. No. So they carry this guilt throughout their lives. And it was something they shared good times and they shared that. So at the end, one remembers what that relationship was. You can read a good portion of it. Nell remembers the funeral the following day, the day after Sula was found. She walked to the burying and found herself the only black person there. 
stealing her mind to the roses and pulleys. It was only when she turned to leave that she saw the cluster of black folk at the lip of the cemetery, not coming in, not dressed for mourning, but there, waiting. Not until the white folks left, the grave diggers, Mr. and Mrs. Hodges, and their young son who assisted them, did those black people from up in the bottom enter with hooded hearts and filed eyes to sing, Shall We Gather at the River, over the curved earth that cut them off from the most magnificent hatred they had ever known. Their question clotted the October air, Shall We Gather at the River, the beautiful, the beautiful river? Perhaps Sula answered them even then, for it began to rain, and the women ran in tiny leaps through the grass for fear their straightened hair would beat them home. Sadly, heavily, Nell left the colored part of the cemetery. Further along the road, Shadrach passed her by. A little shaggier, a little older, still energetically mad, he looked at the woman hurrying along the road with the sunset in her face. He stopped, trying to remember where he had seen her before. The effort of recollection was too much for him, and he moved on. He had to haul some trash out at Sunnydale, and it would be good and dark before he got home. He hadn't sold fish in a long time now. The river had killed them all. No more silver-gray flashes. No more flat, wide, unhurried look. No more slowing down of gills. No more tremor on the line. Shadrach and Nell moved in opposite directions, each thinking separate thoughts about the past. The distance between them increased as they both remembered gone things. Suddenly, Nell stopped. Her eye twitched and burned a little. Sula, she whispered, gazing at the tops of trees. Sula? Leaves stirred. Mud shifted. There was the smell of overripe green things. A soft ball of fur broke and scattered like dandelion spores in the breeze. All that time, all that time, I thought I was missing Jude. And the loss pressed down on her chest and came up in her throat. We was girls together, she said, as though explaining something. Oh, Lord, Sula, she cried. Girl, 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 girl. It was a fine cry, loud and long. But it had no bottom and it had no top, just circles and circles of sorrow.